not something that I say, but you say through me. And Father, you can, you can work miracles between my mouth and the, the listener's ears. And Father, I pray that you do that tonight to help us understand fully your message through Hosea. Father, help us learn what love is as we study this book tonight and next week. Father, I thank you for loving us, and I thank you for Jesus. And it's his name, his name I pray these things. Amen. Uh, tonight marks the beginning of our survey of the Old Testament in studying the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Um, why do we refer to these next 12 books as minor prophets versus the major prophets? Okay, the prophets were small. Little bitty bitty prophets. No. <laughs> yeah, it's because the books are characteristically, they're shorter than the major prophets. It's not because they didn't have very much to say. And it's not because what they had to say wasn't important. Okay? And the minor prophets are not just fillers to fill up some pages at the end of the Old Testament. It's none of that. But characteristically, again, the, the, the minor prophets are shorter. Hosea and Zechariah both have 14 chapters. All the others have fewer than that. Some have one. I think there's one that has one chapter and then some with three and I think one with nine. So they're just shorter books. So they're no less important than the other books written by the prophets. But they're minor just in size only. But I think it's important to, to begin this with remembering, and I, I always like to remind myself, of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God or expired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we know that Hosea is is spoken by God, it's breathed out by God, and it's just as important for us to understand this quote-unquote minor prophet as it is for any other, any other page in the Bible. So it, it's an essential that we look at. That's what we're going to be doing. Um, now, Sunday morning, Corey walked up to me and asked if there was any particular theme that, or maybe one or two themes that she could kind of pick some music from. And I just... in my wit or lack of sometimes, I guess. I said, well, you could always sing the House of the Rising Sun, which that's an old song. Probably nobody even here knows what it is, but Gary knows, Gary knows the song. <laughs> Probably one of the others that does. So anyway, I, and I just told her, I said, you know, the, the title of the study that I've entitled it is Hosea, and it's a study of love. We hear a lot of other things, and there's words. There is a particular word that I'm going to try real hard not to use really often, but I'm reading the scripture. It's in there, so I'm going to read it, you know. Um, but we, we tend to think of the negative side of that, but it literally is. It's a study of love. It's a study of love between Hosea and his wife, Gomer, and it's a study of love between God and his chosen people. So it is literally, it's a study of love. So if we're going to be talking about love, what is love? How would you define love if someone asked you, what is love? How would you define it? Commitment, okay? What else? Sacrificial, right? Say it again. 1 Corinthians 13. It's always good. 
It's a good Sunday morning, Sunday school answer. No, just, but it's an excellent answer. 1 Corinthians 13 lays that out very clearly, what love is. Now, what does the world say that love is? Do they have a different understanding of love than we have in, in our Christian biblical context? It's an emotion, okay? All right? It comes and goes. Yeah. I'm, 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 I love him, or I'm, I, I love him, but I'm not in love with him. I hear that a lot. Or I love her, but I'm not in love with her. I mean, I hear that constantly. I'm like, okay, describe that. What does that mean? Well, you know what it means. They don't know. So it's an emotion. It comes and goes. What else would the world say that love is? Conditional. Okay? Yeah. For the world, it's if you do this, then I'll love you. If you don't do this, I won't love you. And so it is a very conditional love for the world for the most part. We're not going to go where the world goes in that. We're going to be looking in um, a couple of different contexts. One, again, the love between Hosea and Gomer and the love between God and his people. Now, if we, if we think about the word love, do we as a society, do you think we overuse the word love? Hmm? Okay, in what way? Yeah, hot dogs, apple pie, you know, the whole, you know, mom, you know, the whole thing. Yeah, love is used for, I mean, you know, your pet, your, you know, your favorite car or your favorite pair of shoes. You know, and that's not what we're going to be talking about tonight. The Hebrew word that's used in Hosea is the word ahab, A-W-H-A-B, so in case you wanted to look that up. And it literally means to have an affection for. It's an affectionate relationship, and it can be sexual or non-sexual. Okay, because God used the word Ahab for the, for the affection that he had for his people, but then we see the word used between Hosea and Gomer and Gomer for a lover. I mean, so we've seen it used in a number of ways. And the people loving the things of the world, it's the same word. It's an affection for. Now, what is the most common word for love, the Greek word that we see in the New Testament? There's actually five Greek words in the New Testament that are translated into L-O-V-E into, into the English language. What's the one you hear the most about? Okay, phileo is one, agape. Agape is the first word that we hear, and it's really the, the most prominent that we hear. And that's the kind of love, that, it's an unconditional love that God has for us, his chosen, and he expects nothing in return. It's, a, it's an absolutely pure giving love. Phileo was mentioned. Phileo is a, brother, a brotherly love. It's the same root word we get the word Philadelphia. The word Philadelphia from, city of brotherly love. So it's a, it's a familial relationship type love, but it's reciprocal. It's, you know, I'll scratch your back, but you've got to scratch mine too, and, and that's an okay thing. Eros is the third word that's used in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, and it's the same root word that we get the word erotic from. Okay, so it's a sensual type love. And in marriage, it's, it's, a, it's a pure thing. Outside of marriage, it's not, obviously, but in marriage, it's pure. The other two are used a lot less frequently. One is storge, and the word storge talks about a kind of love that takes place over a long period of time, and it's, it's a comfort and a fitting kind of thing. Bryn, I know you remember, you should remember, if I do, you should be able to, uh, Jada, I mean, B.C. and Lottie Housewright at Ridgecrest. I mean, the little bitty couple, they were five foot nothing, I mean, seriously, I mean, they were a little bit, and they would walk down the hall hand in hand, and they just, they looked like each other. They'd been married for 60-something years, you know, 
And they kind of toddled down the hall. And I know, I know the Carols remember them too, you know. So they were just a precious couple. And they just fit together because they'd spent so much time together. Now, Storge can also explain, you know, the, the pair of jeans guys that we have that have holes in them, but we never throw them away. And if our wife or mom throws them away because they've got so many holes, we dig them out of the trash and hide them again because they fit just right. Okay, that's the same thing. Right. The fifth word then is the word epithumia. And that is a word that's used in two different contexts. One inside marriage. And the word epithumia, describe, it's the Greek word that describes what we see in the Song of Solomon. So you read the Song of Solomon, it's the, it's the bride and the bridegroom. They're thinking about each other and it's a, desire, it's, it's a thought desire. Inside marriage, it's a pure thing. Outside of marriage, it's called lust. Okay, so that, those are the words. We're not going to be using any of those words tonight. Okay, so... The only word we are going to be referring to is the word Ahab that talks about an affection okay, that God has for his people and that Hosea had for Gomer. Now, if, if we're talking about, and I'm, I'm, I hadn't talked with Brad because he's going to be doing a series on family, and brother, if I steal some of your thunder, then you, you have my permission to quote me. <laughs> okay. We could use the old saying describing marriage that love is blind. And then marriage is an eye-opener. Think about it, you'll laugh later. Okay, yeah, okay, thanks. It wasn't intended as a joke, it's just an old saying that I came across. Now, one of the key verses to Hosea, before we, go, before we begin in Hosea chapter 1, I want you to turn to Hosea 6, 6. And really, as I was reading through this and studying through this and looking at it, this seemed to be a key verse for a number of commentators. In Hosea 6, 6, God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now the word steadfast love here is also very cleanly translated loyalty. So God desires loyalty over sacrifice. He desires a knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, as we get into the book of Hosea, I want to point out that it is unusual for the minor prophets in that it is one of the longer ones. It is one of the two longer ones of 14 chapters. Um, it also really is not a clear outline of Hosea because it jumps from Hosea's personal life to God's prophecy, Hosea's personal life and the consequences that God is going to pour out on his people and a little bit more about Hosea's life, and then it spends the last 11 chapters. The first three chapters have some about Hosea. The last 11 chapters, strictly about the sin of the people, the consequences, and God's plan for redemption of his people. That, that's how we're going to break this down and look at it. Um, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, there's not a lot revealed in Scripture about Hosea, but in this first verse, we do at least know who his father is, Beeri, and that he served as the Lord's prophet to God's people. And he served during the reign of four different kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. And those kings were Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. 
And they were kings from 790 B.C. to 686 B.C. So they had Ben's fancy timeline, you know, showing up here. I didn't think about getting that, but just kind of imagine. You've seen it enough, you know what it looks like. It'll fit in there. But he also reigned in the time, or he also was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam. It's actually Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, that was in the northern kingdom of Israel from 782 B.C. to 753 B.C. And the timeline indicates that Hosea also was a contemporary with the prophets Isaiah and Micah. So he was, he was the prophet in the northern kingdom when Isaiah and Micah were prophets in the southern kingdom. So kind of see where this falls into place on that timeline. Hosea is also different than, than many of the prophets in that all of his prophecy regarded the northern kingdom of Israel sometimes referred to as Samaria, because that was the capital city of the northern kingdom, also sometimes referred to as Ephraim, about, and that's the prominent tribe in the northern kingdom. So as we go through Hosea, you're going to see many times referred to the northern kingdom referred to as Ephraim, but that was, again, the prominent tribe. That's the reason they did that. So they're all the same. Okay, so let's keep up with that. Hosea 1 verse 2, look at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take a wife, go take yourself a wife. I'm going to start that again. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Notice that the very first thing that God spoke through Hosea was regarding his future wife and the woman that God wanted him to marry. And I use that word three times because it was three times in that scripture. Okay. Have children of whoredom. Now, Hosea had a prominent position in the kingdom. He was God's prophet. And the people knew him. I mean, think about that. He had a prominent position. They weren't always popular, okay, um, but they were they were known. They were known. He was known in the in the in the city in the community. So God tells him, "This is the wife I want you to have," and he explains that. He says, "Because the land, the people, commit great whoredom by forsaking the Lord." So this was going to be a message to the people, not just something that Hosea speaks but something that Hosea lives to show the people this is where you are with God. So, Hosea takes Gomer as his wife, and she had a son. And we see a series now of children, and the names given to the children by by the Lord coincided with the judgment that the Lord was going to pour out. And he says that you will not just take a wife of whoredom, but you'll have... So he, that is Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. 
I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Why would God have chosen such names for Hosea's children? We see some really weird names floating around the world today, but... These kind of names, Jezreel, not my people, no mercy. Why, why would God have chosen those names for, for Hosea's children? What? Say that again. Yeah, that's where Israel had been, and God was saying, okay, I want to tell you where you are. You know, the, and we've seen this pattern throughout, you know, throughout Scripture of you know, people walking with God and then going after the world, and I didn't use that word, walking with God and then going after the world and walking with God and going after the world. And what always brought them back to God? Was it just them saying, you know what, I'm sick of the world, I think I'll go back to God. What always happened to, get to, to bring them back to God? It was judgment. And that's what's happening here. God is speaking judgment through Hosea by naming his children... Jezreel, not my people, and no mercy. Got those out of order, but there they are. And he chose them, chose that. Um, Yeah, I'll go and do this now. Typically, and it was a very common practice, when, when a man and his wife had a baby, and the man was in the house, and the baby was born, he would walk outside, and it was a community event when a baby was born, but it's kind of like it is now. You know, when, when, when there's a newborn, people gather around, they want to see the baby, and they want to hold it, and they want to find out what the name is. The way they would typically do this, and like in this situation, Hosea would take his firstborn, his son, and he would walk outside, and the neighborhood was around, and he'd, he would hold the baby up, and he said, and we don't know that he did this, but let's pretend, okay? For example, and if he said, the Lord said... Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And that's the way Hosea pronounced the name of his son. What what impact do you think that had on the neighbors? (laughs) They probably weren't real pleased with that. Okay, so... Yeah, I think it probably hit him right between the eyes. You know, if it didn't, um, the next one might. Because then he had, they had a daughter. So again, if he would have done it like this, he takes his daughter outside, and he holds her up for everybody to see, and he said, the Lord said, call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have her mercy on the house of Judah. That's the other kingdom, you know. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So there's the second child. And the neighbors are like, hey, no. <laughs> I don't like this. You know? and, and, and it had to hit him again. And then he had the, they had the third child. And if he would have done this, in this way, he would have walked out and said, this is my son. The Lord said, call Call his name, not my people, 
For you, that's a very personal pronoun, you are not my people, and I am not your God. If there was a hiring and firing situation with prophets at that time, I think they probably would have fired him like that. No, it didn't work that way. So do you think the people were convicted by that, or do you think they were indifferent to those names? What do you think? Yeah, it could have been, yeah, he didn't know what he's talking about. You know, and, and if, we look at, if we look historically at what the people did, they might have repented for a little while, and then they just went right back to the other. But we know exactly what God's going to happen, because God said this is what he's going to do. So they may have walked away from that, clenched. You know, here it comes. Yeah, we don't know. Now, read with me the last two verses of the first chapter of Hosea. Hosea 1, verses 10 and 11. Yet, and, and that's one of those words like, um, I just went blank. That we could have been this, but we were this, okay? Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. Have we heard that somewhere before? Now, where have we heard that? Yeah, it was, it was, it was the Aaronic covenant, you know, the, 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 or the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and God speaks it again. In, in the shadow of just saying, you're not my people, I'll have no mercy on you, and I'm going to wipe you out. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, <clears throat> children of the living God. <clears throat> And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. So here's a prophetic statement about the two kingdoms, which have been separated, coming back as one. Okay. So there's a prophetic statement there about the joining of the twelve tribes. And they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Does anybody else find it shocking that in almost the same, or at least in the very next breath, after God pronounces judgment, he, then he pronounces redemption? In one sense, we would kind of be shocked by that. But don't we live that every single day of our lives? When I sin, God convicts me, he could, he could just take me out. But he speaks redemption, and we live under that. <clears throat> and so God's doing that again here. He has given them a prophetic promise about his redemption of them as a people. And why would he do that? Why would God say, I'm going I'm to take you out? And he did. I mean, they, 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 went to, they went into exile, <clears throat> captivity for a while after that, 300 years. Um, but then he redeems them. Why would God redeem such a hard-headed, stiff-necked, head on a swivel that can't keep, you know, their direction. Why would he redeem those people? Covenant. Yeah. And the word that we're looking at tonight is love, which, which belongs to covenant. He loved these people. Were they lovable? Not everybody do this. Yeah. Keep in mind... This is because of his love for his people. And this is the first picture of love that we see from, the, from God in this book of prophecy. And the point to be made here is that God's love for his people, for me, 
for you, for everyone that God has called and chosen, or chosen and called, is the right order in that, for those that he has chosen and called, he does so because of his love and it has absolutely nothing to do with what I can offer him. It has absolutely nothing to do with what I can give God. It's his absolute love for us. Because we sometimes think, yeah, I got, I got, some, I, I got some goods. You know, some things I can do, things I can do pretty good, and I can offer that to God. We have to remind ourselves what God says in Isaiah 64, 6. I'll let y'all turn to that because y'all need to read this. Y'all need to see this. It's not about our righteousness. It's not about the righteousness of the people. It's about God's love, plain and simple. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So our righteous deeds, according to God, are like an unclean or a polluted garment. And the kids in the other room, so if you've never heard this explained, I'm going to explain what that's talking about. A polluted garment was, in, in, another, in, in like the New American Standard, talks about, talks about unclean rags. Okay. In that day and time, they didn't have Walmart. They didn't have Brookshire's. They didn't have CVS or anything else that they could run in and buy, that, that the husband has to run out and buy sedentary products for his wife. Okay, they used rags. That's what this... So our best righteousness is like, like to God, the most heinous, awful thing ever. And that's the way he describes it. So what do we have to offer to God? Zilch. Nothing. Not one thing do we have to offer God. It is his love for us. So God's love being expressed has to do with his divine choice to love an unlovable people. Or it's been spoken so often by Ben and Scott and Brad from the, the platform up here behind this wonderful speaker stand, is that when, an, uh, when a holy God chooses to have a relationship with an unholy people, that's scandalous. And it is. Because there's nothing these people had to offer God, there's nothing we have to offer God. So God simply chooses to love his people. Now let's move on to chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter, so stick with me. I'm going to try to do this fast because we're out of time. Um, Hosea chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she has put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her, between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are the children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them, and she shall seek them but shall not find them. Then she shall say, 
I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, and what a, which were used to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all of her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when, they, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Up to that point, that sounded like Hosea speaking about, about Gomer. And I always just figured it was until I read it closely. That was God speaking about his people, the people of Israel. They were the ones who did all of these things. They were the ones that pursued the world. They were the ones who had children of whoredom. Why? Because they were, they were chasing the things of the world rather than pursuing a relationship with a righteous and holy God. So this is God speaking. He goes on to say, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Here again we see God's redemptive work because of his love for a people. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, <clears throat> at a time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. What a picture of love that is. Brings them in and he says, you're mine forever. After what they had been doing, and he brings them in. <clears throat> I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and again, that word also translates, as it did earlier, loyalty. And in mercy, I will betroth to you, you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, and I will answer the heavens, and they will answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, <clears throat> you are my God. <clears throat> and chapter 2, again, it sounds like in the beginning Hosea is speaking. But if we do this in context and we kind of take out the, the, the chapter division between 1 and 2, the last several verses of chapter 1 is God speaking and then it just flows right into chapter 2. So we have to always remember that context is king. Okay, my small group knows that. Um, or actually, excuse me, it's a life group now. Got to get used to that. Okay, it's a life group. Uh, so yeah, context is king. We have to always consider that. And when, when you, if you're looking at something, you're thinking, well, is this Hosea or is this, is this the Lord speaking? Well, go back and read what happened before. 
And that, that typically will give you the clues as what you need to, to know, know who's speaking, know what's going on. Is this also, though, Hosea's situation? Yeah, it's very clearly Hosea's situation. See, God is using this very real-life example of Hosea and Gomer to demonstrate to the people all that was going on in the people of Israel. Very clear. Hosea still has a wife of whoredom. She is seeking lovers, and in these verses, it is Hosea speaking as well, but the primary message is that of God's dealing with his people, even though it's also dealing with Hosea. And keep in mind, again, Hosea was a prophet in the, in the northern kingdom. He was well known. He was living there. He made himself known. He would speak, and people knew who he was. They also knew Gomer because she lived there. And they also knew Gomer's forays out of marriage. See, remember... Gomer, like everyone else in that time, traveled at three miles an hour. Characteristically, everybody walked. Occasionally, someone was wealthy enough, they might have a horse or a chariot. But she didn't have the, the speed of transportation that we have today. In Greenville, Texas, you can leave here and in 45 minutes be in Dallas. Someone could do that, leave right after lunch, go to Dallas, have an affair, be back before quitting time at 5 o'clock and go home and... Nobody knows any different. They didn't have that in that day and time. It was in the same community. So every relationship, every affair that Gomer had soon became public knowledge. So they knew who she was and what she was doing. They knew Hosea. And they knew what his wife had been doing. So it was a very public situation. Now again, at the end of chapter 2, it's clear that God intends to redeem his people. It's a people that he loves. A people that continued to lust after the things of the world rather than loving the one true God. Keep in mind one of the words in the Bible that was translated in love, we talked about earlier at the beginning tonight, is the word epithemia. Speaking of that sensual desire, those thoughts. Inside of marriage it is pure, outside of marriage it's lust. And so that's what's going on with the people of God. They're lusting after the things of the world rather than desiring that pure relationship with God just as Gomer was lusting after other men and things that they could give her rather than remaining true and faithful and loyal to her husband and in doing that staying faithful to God as well as we move into chapter 3 we see again God speaking directly to Hosea in the first first verse of chapter 3 the Lord said to me go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So at best, we have a marriage situation that's tainted. Okay, I think everybody would agree that would, yeah, that marriage is tainted. There's some problems here. By, by many people's standards, the marriage is ruined. Kick her out. Get rid of her. It's never going to change. Close that chapter. Look for something else. Look to see how God's going to honor you by getting rid of this 
woman of whoredom. But God says, go get her. Take her back. So in Hosea chapter 3 verse 2, Hosea says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lathek of barley. So Hosea takes 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lathek. Basically, it's a homer and a half of barley. And that's also worth 15 shekels of silver. So he takes the value of 30 shekels of silver, probably... Many commentators say that's probably all that he had to his name. He may have had to hock some stuff to get that much. And he went to pay the redemption price for his wife. Now, we don't know what Gomer did to end up on the auction block. That's exactly where she ended up. She may have been, some commentators say she might have been a cult prostitute. And to buy her freedom, it took 30 shekels of silver. She may have indentured herself to someone else, to another man, and he got tired of her, so he's selling her. But whatever the situation is, she is on the auction block in public, and typically when slaves were auctioned, they were not wearing any clothes so that the buyer could see what he or she was buying. Okay. So, here in the community where Hosea was a prophet and his wife lived and these are his neighbors and they're all standing around, Hosea shows up in an absolutely humiliating type scenario. And she's being auctioned off. Now, we know that the redemption price, the payment price for a woman set by the law in Leviticus, is 30 shekels. In Leviticus 27, 2 through 4. God says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years up to 60 years shall be 50 shekels of silver. So, all the men in here tonight are worth 50 shekels of silver. what it says but the payment price for a woman is set by the law as something different it goes on to say this is according to the shekel of the sanctuary if the person is a female the valuation shall be 30 shekels so Gomer is auctioned off for the bare minimum price there was no lower price that she could be auctioned off for In other words, she had hit bottom. She had nothing to offer anyone. She could not be sold for any less than 30 shekels. So Hosea shows up. He brought all that he had in order to redeem his wife. Not a prostitute, not a cult prostitute, not an adulteress. He came to redeem his wife. Keep that in mind. He came to redeem his wife, not a cult prostitute, not an adulteress. He took, well, easily, maybe, all that he had. 
And he was able to do this through the power of God. To see beyond the condition that his wife was in. Standing up on the, I mean it would be like this. Standing up on the auction block. Okay. Probably with no clothes. And being auctioned off. And Hosea, standing in the midst of his neighbors, said, 30 shekels. And he bought her back. Why would he do that? Given what she had been doing and where she ended up, why would Hosea do that? God told him to. <laughs> and he also loved her. Absolutely. Yeah, Hosea saw the bigger picture with everything that was going on. So God commanded him to do it, and he said, yes, sir. And he went and did it. He also saw a bigger picture. He also loved his wife. Okay. Hosea, in this telling of this part of the story, he holds marriage high. He holds the covenant of marriage where it belongs, at the highest level that he could reach. Not something that was just a social convenience. Not something that was just I'm tired of living by myself, so let's get married and we'll, we'll see how it lasts. He went into it understanding that marriage is a covenantal relationship. And it wasn't to be broken. Not even by multiple adulteries. He held God's plan for the redemption of his people and the redemption of his marriage in high regard. He held marriage as high as it could be held by doing this. In the face of people that were probably jeering. We don't know that for sure. But we know people. And there had to been people going, you know, whispering. And maybe not even whispering. Maybe yelling at him. Idiot. You can imagine what kind of, maybe some of the stuff that was going on. He won her. He won the auction. And then possibly took his outer garment off, went up, and wrapped it around her. Can you see that as an act of love? To be able to cover her with his garment? And then he took her down off the, off the auction block. What happened next? He spoke to her. And in verse 3, And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man and will I also be to you. Hosea redeemed her and then he set limits. He said, I love you. I'm taking you back. You're not going to do that anymore. That ends. The line in the sand is drawn. You've gone this far. You're not going to go any further. And he set boundaries for her. And we see the same thing happening with God's people. By God. He redeemed her. He took her back as his wife. But he places boundaries and he says, 
no more. We're going to see next week, yeah, we're going to see next week that this picture of love of Hosea and his wife, that a love that a man has for a wife, that causes him to desire that relationship with her, we're going to see also that that love caused him to redeem her, and we're going to see the same thing from God. That God loved this people, and he redeemed them from a pit that they had fallen into, and they were just filthy because of where they are. And, folks, it's where we are. Apart from Christ, we would be in that same place. And yet, because God chooses to love us, he redeems us. We're going to see that in, in, in the last part of, of our study next week. So, it's time to go, so let's close with prayer. Father, again, we bow before you and we thank you for loving an unlovable people. Thank you for us being able to see that you loved Israel in the midst of their whoredom. And that your plan was to redeem them, and you did redeem them. Father, you also look at Morris. Every one of us sitting here can fill their own name in that, in that blank. You look at us and you see us in our uncleanness, our sin. We have nothing to offer you. And yet you choose to love us. You choose us and you call us and you redeem us through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we thank you for that. Help us rejoice in that. As the people of Israel learned to rejoice at a later time, knowing that they had been redeemed by white, hot, holy God. Father, we are also a people redeemed by Jesus Christ who paid the price to you, that white, hot, holy God. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for revealing yourself to us and for allowing us to know you. Father, help us go from this place tonight to Enjoy our families, enjoy the rest of the evening, enjoy the rest of the week, but to walk this week in an awareness of it being your love for us that we're redeemed. It's not because we have anything to offer. That doesn't make less of who you are, but it makes the most of who you are. See ourselves as less, we see you as greater. Father, we thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who leads us into the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. All right, go grab your kiddos.